Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by it in a major way. And today on the show, this is a really big one for me, Jim Cuddy of the band The Hi-Fis and a little band called Blue Rodeo. Okay, more on that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me at, uh, what's the email address for this podcast? I'm also joined today for this intro, I should say, before we go any further, by none other than the infamous Holden Draws and Dorian, a.k.a. Mystery Kid. Right, guys? Yeah. All right, so they're joining me for this intro. Uh, so if you want to get in touch with me for this podcast, you can find me at turnitapunkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on various forms of social media at Lefford Damien. If you'd like to find the show on Facebook, there's a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, and that is at uh, facebook.com slash turnedoutapunk. If you would like to support this show, the best way to do so is by subscribing to it on iTunes, writing a review for it, and rating it. If not, uh, like, I mean, if you don't use iTunes, just tell all your friends. Let people know that we're doing this show. Uh, and uh, speaking of supporting the show, this show is made possible by the wonderful support of the fine people at Vans Shoes who have come aboard and helped me out immensely. They've just let me kind of pick whoever I want to pick as guests, and they just support me, what I'm doing here. So thank you very much to everyone at Vans for uh, continuing to support the show. I also want to give you guys, um, uh, I don't know, no real way to say this properly, but uh, we might be a little slower returning to messages right now. Um, it's because we're going through a bit of a family emergency uh, so yeah, so just, uh, thank you. Keep us in your thoughts. Uh, we're going to just try and keep these episodes coming for you guys and stuff like that. But if I don't respond to you or if Tristan doesn't get back to you, just please understand we're going through some stuff right now and I appreciate your support, um, very much. Right guys? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Today on the show, this is a huge one. Uh, Jim Cuddy is someone, uh, I grew up listening to. I, I think everyone um, in Canada of a certain age grew up listening to Blue Rodeo. Blue Rodeo was kind of our Bruce Springsteen. They wrote songs that really soundtracked a lot of people's lives and continue to soundtrack a lot of people's lives. Jim Cuddy just put out a brand new record called Constellation that's available on Warner Music Canada, a fantastic new album. I've been listening to it a lot lately. Um, some, yeah, good songs for right now, what, everything I'm going through. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's a he's an amazing songwriter. Someone that uh, I had an ch- opportunity to kind of meet years ago as a little kid in my neighborhood, meet again as a musician, and now finally got the chance to sit down with him and and just punish him, get to talk to him about all the subjects that I love to talk about on this show and prattle on about forever. Uh, I should give you some notes before we get into this thing um, on the show today. I. We kind of refer to these records that I have because I brought down copies of the Hi-Fi singles and the first Blue Rodeo single. So if at times it sounds like we're looking at something, that's we are looking at that. And also, even though I argue with Jim about this, Ceramic Hello was indeed from Burlington. I don't know why I said Hamilton. I was too excited to think straight, I guess. Uh, that's it for uh, stuff about the show. Please, once again, uh, thank you for understanding right now. And uh, I will uh, see you on the other side. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the legend, 
the the sorry guys for the swear word the effin legend Jim Cuddy on Turned Out a Punk. I don't get yeah, it's funny because when Devin went up there for his orientation, I'd been in Orchard and we went and I thought, this place is the same dump I went to. This can't be where you want to go. He said, Well, I think I've made my decision. Are you joking? You wanna come here? Northern made more sense to me because it had all those different programs. Yeah, it had all those cool programs and like a lot of money put in that school. Shitty school. My wife went to Northern. Or North Toronto, I can't remember now. Moving again, so it was at the same time or anything. Um, okay, but let's. Uh, yeah, okay, you know we, we're going to get to you in Northern, I'm sure, right very quickly because I want to talk to you about how North Toronto, you, how you got into punk, and the first time you ever came across the genre. So when uh, like we're in, we're you know, I'm in uh, you know, high school in the mid '70s, like I'm mm-hmm. finished in '74, and by that point I am full folk. I'm I'm just like <laughs> I'm I like. You know, folk music, country-ish music, Jerry Jeff Walker, that kind of stuff. Spend a year in the mountains and get really into all that stuff. All the, you know, the Los Gonzo Band and uh, the Burrito Brothers and all this great stuff. And that's my genre. I like, you know, it's guitars and, and cowboy outfits and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> when the we fugs, come back... Huh? Were the thugs at all on your radar? No. 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 And by the time we come back... When, uh, so I went to university and when, when Greg and I started... A band, so that would have been 1978. We came to Toronto, and uh, we started a band that was that we figured was a pop band, but it was definitely an amphetamine pop band because mm-hmm. it was just there was you know what you were doing then was eighth note da 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 da, and that's what we we had been listening to, and punk was that was the dominating genre in the city. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a lot of new wavy stuff that was coming to the edge, but the things that were being played, the vile tones, the demics, they were, those were, the, those were the band, the bands. And we were sort of fitting in a little bit because uh, we were very energetic and we, we played really hard and we jumped around on stage. And, but we were definitely, you know, <laughs> we were definitely Beatle melodies, Beatle mel- you know, harmonies and back and forth vocals. And I remember we we did a tour with this guy Randy, who was good friends with DOA. And we Randy Rampage? Or Randy Rampage that used to he used to own record stores, he used to own record on okay. wheels. Okay, oh is okay. that I don't he I mean No, I don't do you, do you have a band? Or? No, no. Okay, okay, no. So no, he was kinda like an an empresario. Okay. Just a young guy. Yeah. And he took us down there and, and I remember that uh, somehow Joey shithead saw us and he said you guys are good you get some air which meant we jumped up you, know, <laughs> you, you took some air <laughs> so, okay that's great and uh, but you know we didn't we didn't we didn't really fit in the we fit we fit somewhat in the punk ethic but mm-hmm. we didn't fit in the punk style of music mm-hmm. plus we didn't really you know we didn't have a lot of places to go with that band like we just didn't, we couldn't keep it going. You know, we had we did three years or something, and and then we just we just ran out of musical ideas. Well, like I was gonna say when because you talk about the Beatles melody and how that was you know where you guys were going, but I think that was part of the return to new, like I guess the new wave of music that was going on, be it punk, be it yeah. like all sorts of things, like this sort of like return yeah. to 
to the roots of what made pop and rock music so good, right? Like you had bands like The Nerves in yeah. LA doing, you know, Beatles things and that yeah. power pop thing, I guess, gets swallowed up into it. What was your first exposure to like that style of music coming from a folk thing? Like what were some of the other bands that were sort of touchstones for you? Like were you a Flaming Groovies fan at all? Or? A little bit, but you know, I think Elvis Costello was probably a, a big, big part of that. And, and even that I realized in retrospect, that was kind of fake because the <laughs> band that played you know what they call Crimson? Was that the band that, that played on his first record? They were very, yeah. they were a very accomplished band. They weren't, uh, you know, there was something about that appealed to us at the beginning about the the punk scene because we were very new to our instruments and we loved the fact that people could get up there and play uh, with new skills, mm-hmm. you know, with not not really accomplished skills. Mm-hmm. But I was still very smitten when I saw somebody that could really play guitar, <laughs> you know. And and I know I know everybody was because when we came back and started Blue Rodeo, so many of those people that had been in the Demics and they they came back having woodshedded and could play, mm-hmm. you know. So I mean, Steve Koch was he was a punk guitar player. Mm-hmm. We always thought he was fantastic. And then when we came back, he had learned all this stuff. Jack and stuff, you know, different different guitar stylings, <clears throat> and and it was that's like three years off the scene, not not playing with anybody except for the occasional Demix reunion, mm-hmm. and that was pretty exciting to us at that point too, where we realized that this was opening up a whole new new genre uh, that not genre, new way of playing mm-hmm. that that you know you had you had to learn and and we didn't know it yet. So what was the first time that you actually heard about you know the, the the word punk in terms of a music genre. Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? Well, I'm sure it must have been with the Sex Pistols. I can't. I can't think of. It. I mean, it. 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 It, uh, <clears throat> it must have been. I mean, that you know, we're we're. I'm a university student in '77, yeah. so it, you know, that was a big deal. That was a that was a big deal, and it was a big deal for me hearing about it and hearing the music. And then going on Tuesday nights to the folk club in in, <laughs> in, in, in Kingston, you know, the Scarecrow, and then hearing David Bradshaw and, and uh, Willie P. Bennett. And uh, I wasn't, you know, in those days I wasn't, there was, I think that part of the choices that people made in those days were, were, was about, uh, was about situation. Like, I could not have been a punk musician in... No, I wasn't inclined, but I couldn't have been a punk musician in Kingston. Mm-hmm. It didn't make sense. It didn't, it didn't make sense with, the, with where I was. But when I came back to Toronto, starting Blue Rodeo, it made sense to be more aggressive with what we did because that was the scene we were in. That's where everybody was wandering around these pretty deserted and dirty-ass streets mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, and that, the, the music was kind of reflective of that. It's funny because, yeah, Kingston's like the one city around in southern Ontario that never really had a punk band in that first wave. No. Like, you know, you think about, you know, the the bands that were from London or the bands that were yeah. from Hamilton or the bands yeah. that were from Oshawa even. But you don't really think about, you know, Kingston for the size of that place and given yeah. how many young people are there, they didn't really have that. that no, it was to- there was nothing. There was nothing. There. But there was not, nowhere to play. Yeah, I mean, they obviously, you know, you can always figure out a warehouse or something, but I never heard about. I don't even know if there were rock bands coming through. Like I didn't, I didn't hear about anything. Yeah, I was pretty cloistered in the on the campus, and then I'd go to Princess to go to the Scarecrow. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it certainly made sense, you know, and uh, um, and the 
the edge used to have a pretty steady stream of Chris Spettings and, and people mm-hmm. that played, you know, uh, Les Ball Juniors and, <laughs> and, and all cool stuff like that. Um, and there were, you know, there was also a level, like a, a certain level of violence in the punk scene. Like, I remember being outside of the Cabana Room one time and, and one of the bands said, uh, you guys want to have a rumble, like for money. You know, like what? <laughs> well, we'll fight for twenty bucks. It's like, no, no, we don't. And maybe this is not a good scene for us. Was it the ugly? I don't know. It. <laughs> I, for some reason, I think it was a bunch of fucking goosebumps. <laughs> but that's too early for them. I think it's too early for them. It, yeah, like it, what? I don't think they're till the till nineteen eighty. Yeah, no, no, they would have. Yeah, been. so I think this, probably would have been the ugly, right? Like they would have been the toughs around that time the East End like from what I read well like, this would have been at the Cabana Room so this is definitely West I, I don't know I can't, I, just can't, I can't remember who it was wow. but it was somebody that played the <laughs> Cabana Room and we were just wandering down like they knew we were banned and it was all done f- totally friendly yeah yeah it wasn't like fuck you we're gonna beat you up it's like you wanna rumble very professional yeah like you wanna play cards <laughs> so, <laughs> so what, yeah cause I was you know like obviously the the, there was like that first wave of bands and they would play the Crash and Burn, you know, yeah. and then there's the Horseshoe kind of after that that seems to take over. And the Horseshoe after that, we're done. We're gone. Yeah. We're, we're, gone, to, we're gone to New York. So we, we missed all that. And, but those figures were very important to us. Like uh, Keith Demick was a very important figure, mm-hmm. right? First of all, his band was amazing. Mm-hmm. And secondly, he was the arbiter of taste on Queen Street. He was. <laughs> And when you came back, Handsome Ned was the guy that led the charge, but nobody was looking for Handsome Ned's endorsement. But Keith was a gruff, semi-famous, fucking gravelly guy. And once he placed his endorsement on you, that was a big deal. That was, made you feel comfortable on Queen Street. So it's funny that you know the scene was completely different. It was definitely like some kind of cowpunk scene, mm-hmm. but an old punk was the was the leader. <laughs> the king. He was the king. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Um, what? Because you guys are like the the band. Ultimately, I mean, Blue Rodeo that that breaks out of that punk scene and becomes like the first sort of national international band. Did you encounter a lot of bitterness from? like other punks because you know obviously punk's a famously bitter genre <laughs> yeah uh, I don't know about from other punks it was it was but there was a sense that we had uh, betrayed our roots and uh, there was a and maybe this is part of the punk ethos there's a great sense of ownership when things are small and containable mm-hmm. and we, we felt that and we liked that we we never thought we were going to break out of the horseshoe nor did we want to mm-hmm. we were perfectly happy <clears throat> and uh, even when we were playing the diamond, there was still this sense that, that was okay. It was just more of the same. But yeah, once we once we had a radio song and once we started to do all those things that come along with that, there was there was a, a core part of our audience, uh, not necessarily musicians, that felt betrayed or said it in a way that was just. Well, I don't go there. I don't. I don't go to that. Those bands. I just. I have my own bands. That kind of stuff. But not. Not musicians. Not. Not. Uh, in fact, I think that people that had been in punk bands and then in other bands, they understand that 
those were a lot of years. Mm -hmm. And those are a lot of years of not making any money. Mm -hmm. And I think that they were happy for us, you know. The only confusion was that people started to die, Mm -hmm. you know. And then there was, that was sobering anyway. So, you know, Handsome Ned dies, I don't know, a couple days before we started making the record, right around when we're making the record. And it's kind of like a symbol of of the death of a scene, which wasn't, but it was so it was was somber after that. Well, that's like a, a death that people still talk about to this day. Mm-hmm. Like it's one of those ones that you know a lot of people pass away, but there's few that still resonate. You know, how many years later? I agree. I agree, and I think also that you know that the scene was kind of based on alcohol and soft drugs, and you know. Those Lost Highway guys, they lasted a long time on, 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 on alcohol. Mm-hmm. You don't last a long time on heroin. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's, a short, that, that's a short term. And, I mean, Hanson Ed was, I don't know, was he 28 or 29? It's like, totally sucks. But it made everybody feel like the, it was over, you know? It wasn't over, but one part of it was over. And that great hope of it was over. What, what was it that, what was it that romanticized heroin in Toronto? Because like you know, you, you hear about Johnny Thunders being the guy that did it yeah. in New York, or you hear about you know Johnny Thunders ultimately doing it in London, but Sid Vicious doing it for a lot of people in yeah. London. You know, like was there a person in Toronto or a band? I should say you don't have to name names, but was yeah, there a yeah. band in Toronto? No, I don't think. You see, I I, I was I'm pretty unaware because I worked so hard in those days that I I don't know that I. I was, I mean, I was certainly aware that Ed was, was snorting it, but I was not aware that, um, uh, that Ned was shooting it. And, and, you know, I, I mean, it, it always, there was something repellent about it. So, mm-hmm. we, you know, we saw Chris Bedding, and he, an incredible guitar player, what he can get out of that one guitar, one tone, one freaking pickup, and what he can do with that guitar. About two nights later, we saw him. We were in New York, and he was yellow. He was so, so harrowed out. He was he was yellow. We saw him, and he had two girls. He, he, we said, oh, "We just saw you in Toronto. You're great." And he looked at them. He didn't remember being in Toronto. Yeah. And he doesn't even know where he is. And so there was something so repellent about it that the heroin scene in Toronto was not very much in the open. It was part of it was the idea of snorting or being a little on the nod. That was okay. But anything else was done, and it was all—it was all under the guise of uh, just uh, kind of reprobate behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that Ned didn't come down for his his matinee till seven o'clock in the evening. This was funny. It's just like, well, you know, there's like Johnny Cash and all these guys—they burned it up, and he's just sleeping or doing something. No, it was like he wasn't in shape to play. Mm-hmm. So we—that was all the reckoning of, of of Ned's death was that. Yeah, this this drug is bad. It sucks, and and this is all the things that have been happening that we've been turning a blind eye to. So, going back to before that time period when when you were just starting out playing with the high fives, where did you guys kind of fit in scene wise? Like, who were the bands that you you were playing with, and what like were the clubs that you kind of played most? Because you it, the thing is like, yeah. it's not one of the bands you see on the flyers all the time. Like that's why yeah. when it was such an obscure gem. 
when like finding out about this single and it's like, oh my right. gosh, and it connects to Blue Rodeo. Like it's <laughs> it's crazy. But like it wasn't like, you know, the vile tones or even the way outs. Like you see the way outs occasionally yeah. on flyers a little bit more. So what was your It's funny, I would say that we played more than those bands. Really? Yeah, they, those were still event bands. Okay. And yeah. we were not we we had no interest in being an event band. We just played. Mm-hmm. Played as often as we could get a gig. Cabana Room was sort of our our place. And the bands that, that came up, Steve Blimke, I can't remember what, yeah. and the something or other. Yeah, they were on, uh, were they on Ready? They were right? on Ready Records. So, so we have this thing with Ready Records. That Ready Records is going to sign us, going to sign us, going to sign us. I think they already had the Spoons at that time. And they Blue had Peter. Steve, but that Blue Peter, yeah, of course. But and the Demix, right? The Demix. <clears throat> Oh, the blue, but the Demix on. I think the Demix were a later re-release on on on. I think that first twelve inch, right? With uh, New York. I mean, the New York City was yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, and I think it sold like something like fifteen thousand copies. Okay, and it's on quality quality distributed it. Okay, now I remember that. But anyway, they uh, they talked to us and they were going to sign us and we were going to have Dave Fleury produce a record. Oh wow! And we didn't really, you know, we thought okay, and they want oh, going to get that live sound, all that bullshit. And uh, <laughs> then they signed Colin Linden instead, <laughs> right? Because he was a little wonder kid, yeah. You know, and they, they liked that. So, uh, and you know, we've seen them over the years, which has been really fun. Yeah. Nice choice. <laughs> <laughs> was, it, was that would that be uh, would that have been the seven inch as a twelve inch or would that have been like a separate LP? As far as I know, well, I think in those days you would absolutely have put out a single, a, a single yeah. first, yeah, and then and then do something. But we never really got to that stage. What about you know? You know you, and it was funny with that because you know that single we did that single. We had uh, Dave Booth as our manager, yeah, and sure. we we had that single out in within the first six months. And and uh, Bob Makowitz was a DJ and one of the program directors. Liked it, put it on the air. So oh. we were only a band, I would say six months or maybe less. And we had a song on rock radio in Toronto. So we thought, this is fantastic. <laughs> we figured this out. This is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and then it was just a whew, from there. <laughs> so Dave, downhill from there. Dave Boothman, who also owned Showbiz Records, right? That was his yeah. Label. And Dave Booth was Dave Booth, Booth. was Dave Booth was uh, he was really more a rockabilly guy. Mm-hmm. He he the, the Bobcats were his thing, mm-hmm. and uh, he managed us. Um, but like I said, we we sort of had a, a a really sharp incline, and then a very slow decline. We didn't really have anywhere to go with the music. And uh, uh, and poor Dave, he, you know, he put money and time into it, and then he just kind of ran out of that and enthusiasm. He was friend, he's actually my he was friends with my dad. And yeah, he, he, didn't he wind up burning the Blue Society in Toronto for? A, he he might he yeah, might he might have. That didn't sound like him because he was so much more into rock. But uh, he he uh, he ran one of the record stores. Uh, he was like a cops guy. Cops guy. He was yeah. a cops guy, yeah. right? And uh, you know he I mean he. He had his own, his own way of doing. But things. what a year too to like of all the bands to pick to pick you guys and the Bobcats who who had success. Too. Oh, the Bobcats! He had he had good five years with them. Yeah, yeah they were they were really good. And when, when you know when Jack the Kaiser came in and replaced uh, Dwayne Wayne, that that they were they were set to do live stuff. Yeah, but he was just such a such a rockabilly fan. That's really what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. He didn't really even understand us, and nor were we good enough for him. You know, mm-hmm. he wanted to. He wanted bands that played and did the thing that he liked the most, which was, which was Gene Vincent, and you know, <laughs> that's, his that's thing. what he liked. Yeah, that's what he liked. 
Um, so how did that single come about? You just did he see you guys play and just approach? He you? saw us play and approached us. And in those days, we were like, "Yeah, that's great. Somebody wants to manage us. Wow, like we've been a band five minutes, and uh, uh, I'm sh- oh god, am I going to get this right? I'm pretty sure we made the uh, we record we made the record with Doug McClement. Okay, uh, and uh, we can probably check the, the, we can probably fact check that right now. On the uh... nope. No, but I, anyway, I'm pretty sure we did. I'm pretty sure we made it with uh, with Doug McClement, and uh, yeah, recorded at Comfort Sound. Yeah, and then uh, our friend Abby Trowell made that, and she was uh, at the time she was uh, Teddy Fury's girlfriend, and that was sort of new wavy, the pink and blue yeah, and yeah. high fives. And but it's funny to think sonically because sonically meant whatever we bought <laughs> yeah, exactly. like we didn't know that you know different guitars I mean we did know but there was nothing we could do about it we just whatever guitar we had an amp we had I'm sure I had a Fender in those days and I think my first guitar that I bought was a, some kind of uh, Telecaster or something if, whatever that sound was that was our sound right that, that's and Greg had sound. an old Silvertone amp like I'm pretty sure those were Sears amps and which was a great amp yeah and uh <laughs> What kind of guitar has he got in here? Oh, he's just holding on to the bass. But he was always about clothes. Greg had all the clothes. It's such a... <laughs> but like, even the, the, everything about this single, it's such a cool aesthetic, it's such a cool vibe. What was your, where did you guys play your very first show? I'm pretty sure we'd played it in a warehouse. A warehouse. I think it was a warehouse uh, rent party. And it was down sort of... Uh, uh, George Street, Jarvis, and, and uh, Dundas area. Early, Pretty sure that was the first one. Earlier you mentioned the uh, Spoons. Did you see them when they were like still that like dark, minimal synth, new wavy band? On well, they were records? just coming up, and that was and yes, that's what that's what we that's what they were. Yeah. But they did have the Nova Heart, you know. So they had they had the single, but uh, that was not in any way a form of music that we could have embraced. <laughs> that was you know, part of the reason we're like, well, let's get the fuck out of here, and go to New York. Because what are we going to do with this? You know, we're never going to be into the synth-driven bands, and yet, and that's all what New York was too. But we could avoid it. Did you ever see Ceramic Hello? No. Speaking of synth bands, okay. No. And that was the post spoons. Like the keyboard just went off to do that. That's oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, and I've never gone. even heard of the name. Yeah, they're they're like this band from Hamilton. I'd never heard of them either. And then uh, I was, you know, as you know, a record nerd. So I was trading records with some guy in Europe, and he's like, "Have you ever found any Ceramic Hello records?" Wow, really. Like, no, and it's now like it's been reissued by a French label and all this sort of stuff. But is that right? Yeah, it's like so. Were they were they a Ham- they were Berlin Hamilton Hamilton Hamilton? Yeah, I think. Well, the, that's at least where the Mannequin Records was the label. Yeah, yeah, I thought they were Burlington band. I, well, I think Mannequin at least was based at a Hamilton. That's okay. where the the guys that went up doing Ceramic Hello were from. Ceramic Hello, that's a great name. Too. But there's like there's so many great bands on that label, like Breeding Ground. Yeah, that sounds almost like they this. were a big part of our scene. That that they were a big part of the. The a, scene in a great, great yeah. early records. <clears throat> yeah. So what about Blue Peter? Would you play with them? Or Oh, God, no. Blue Peter were, like, way above us. <laughs> Fuck. Blue Peter. We used to work, uh, Greg and I worked at a, at a Moroccan restaurant just down the, just down the street from uh, Larry's Hideaway. Okay. And so we, you could go to Larry's Hideaway after 11 or something. There was no cover. And we used to see Blue Peter and just, I don't know about Greg, but just blew me away. Yeah. How good they were. Yeah, just they- blew me away. They have some amazing So they were like, they were here. 
So eventually, you know, the hi-fi, as you say, you come to the end after, you know, New York, I guess. And No, no, we, we didn't. We were done by before we went before to New York. York. Okay. Yeah, we were, we'd sort of changed to whatever we were going to be. I don't know. We were listening to Talking Heads and all kinds of stuff like that. And we knew we were going to go to New York. Did you record any other stuff after the single? Like demos uh, that didn't come in or anything? Uh, we have, yeah, we have recordings. Yeah, we have recordings of, of some of those songs, which is kind of great. You're saying, like, why don't you? Oh, you got to reissue this yeah. stuff, man. And, uh, um, <laughs> this is a great reissue. This is an amazing opportunity. <laughs> yeah, all of this that stuff. <laughs> well, I can I can think of at least five that I've got friends that I can give them to too. So there we go. There's six. So. There's six. <laughs> uh, this is a five hundred dollar record now. So. You got a yeah. You don't yeah exactly. Five hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and those so, were also the days of uh, like the 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 clubs weren't there wasn't enough activity in the clubs, so mm-hmm. we we put on uh, our own shows. I think before we went to New York, we put one on on the Desh Baguette Temple, which was on uh, it's uh, Queen and uh, uh, just about Strawn, just okay. around there. And uh, so we put one on, and then that was. Then we went to New York. So who were some of the bands that you'd book to play these shows with you? Was it like Breeding Ground, or is it? No, uh, I didn't know them very well. Who did we book? God, I wish I could remember. Because we had a bunch of bands that night. I'm sorry, I'm not. No, no, don't worry. No, I don't. I don't have. I that. believe me. <laughs> That'd be interesting to know, because I mean, I even had for the longest time, and I do have somewhere a poster from that. Oh, because it had like three it had three bands on that night. Was the Stranger like at all involved in your scene? Or? They were they were younger, so yeah. or the Lawn. If Blue Peter were here and we were here, they were the they next. Were there. <laughs> but the Lawn, you know what? The Lawn, the Lawn was definitely somebody that uh, that we we played with. Gord, we played with. Yeah. Um, it's funny because it wasn't you know it wasn't a very it was a very competitive scene then. Mm-hmm. So, unlike the scene that we came back to in in the eighties. The 70s were, you know, there was only a few slots, places to play. And I remember the Time Twins, was that the name of the band? Yeah, time, two, were, two singles, I think. They were big, and the government was around. They were, they were, they, they did a lot. Did the government kind of cross over a little bit? Because they're also kind of Cameron House. Well, scene. they were, they were, uh, they were a very big uh, um, uh, cabana room. Band. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, they were a very big cabana room. I think, I don't know that the government played the Cameron a lot, but I'm, Pretty sure he still lives. There. Yeah, um, but there, I guess uh, sorry, that's what I meant. Like they were, they seemed like they would have been a band that you know existed in both worlds. Like they would have been like a new wave kind of synthy band. Yeah, but you know what? It's they. They were pretty. They were very central to that to whatever that that late seventies punk new wave uh, intellectual band. They were very central to that. Then by the time, then by the time the scene has changed. They're obviously still on the scene, but not playing very much. Mm-hmm. Not playing at all, I don't think. I mean, every so often he'd play. What was New York like when you guys got down there? What was that scene? Well, New York was a bit was a bit of a mirage, right? I mean, it's uh, probably the worst place in the world to start a band, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. Because uh, it's very difficult to keep life and limb together. You mm-hmm. have to work a lot to keep to keep paying rent and, and mm-hmm. eating. And on any given night, any music fan can see. 20 or 30 world-class acts. Oh, everything, yeah. And and 20 bands that are regionally incredibly popular, like NRBQ or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Now, it was very inspiring because it was really easy to get people to play with you. Uh, you know, we just put an ad in the 
paper and boom, we had this band and we had great, great players and people that had played with people. So it was, a, it was definitely a step up in terms of, of competency and, and, and who people had played with, yeah. which was really, really enjoyable. And we got to know certain people, like the Drongos were a very important band for us. They were a New Zealand band, and they were pretty, very popular. Were they, were they a Flying Nun band, Drongos? Maybe not. Maybe they were, there was Flying Nun, a, a New Zealand. Yeah, that's a yeah, New Zealand see, they were they were definitely transplants. Okay. So they were New York, and I know they put a record out in New York, and, uh, but I'm sure it wasn't Flying Nun. Okay, okay. Yeah, so they were, they were, they were a really good band. And they were they were the ones that we ultimately when that band when our band exploded we made a demo with them that's the first Blue Rodeo demo oh with really? the Drongos yeah so that's before the seven inch obviously then oh yeah yeah oh. so that's just like no with with the with Blue Rodeo with Blue Rodeo yeah, right yeah. so that's Blue that's, Rodeo seven inch that's with all the that's with all the uh, um, so with a lot of the songs that ended up on our first record and that was that recorded in New York. Mm-hmm. Oh, crazy. Mm-hmm. So, like, what, some of the other players you were playing with, were they people from any other... Were they from what kind of bands were they... Uh, Al Cash was, had been... Uh, <clears throat> he was... Uh, Com- not Commander Cody. Yeah, Commander Cody. He was Commander Cody. Uh, bass player was somebody completely new. Um, Al Cash went on to play... He might have played with Nick Cave in Australia. Oh, wow. So... The name sounds really familiar. Yeah. He's a great drummer, a great guy. He played with a lot of people. Um, yeah, and then we had this guy Steve Adorno for a while. He played with like Latin bands. Um, so it's all types of musicians. Oh, all types. But it was that yeah. was the yeah. that was the, uh, the the scene in New York at the time was was had been determined by the bands that had gone through CBGBs. Mm-hmm. So Blondie and and the Talking Heads and bands like that. And they played everything. So, you know, could the English beat could come, something like this. So we played ska, reggae, pop, you know. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, everything. And it was, you know, it was great. It was great fun because it was great to learn. Yeah. And we, we definitely adapted it to our own style. And, uh, and it was all very energized. It was great. And we had, you know, Al was such a great drummer. But, yeah, again, like, you'll run. I mean, and, and again... Within the first six months, Nemper, Patrick Clifford from Nemper Records yeah. wanted to do a deal with us. And we're like, wow, okay, this is great. And then that, of course, blew up somehow. I don't know how it happened, but, but it blew up. And then we, we just kept sending our demos around to people, and we get good interest, and they, become, they want to come see us. But those are the days when there was, there was no real focus to the scene in New York at the time. Mm-hmm. Anybody that played at CBGB's, <clears throat> it wasn't, there was no, uh, there was no prestige to playing at CBGB's. Anybody could get a gig there. It's there was four, the four bands, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Four bands a night and each band being their friends. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it's a complete and absolute dump. Although, there's a guy in there named Robin, I can't remember his last name, and he has this beautiful two inch 16 track recorder in the basement and he makes exquisite tapes. So, you know, so that was great. And he was really good. He was a good guy. You knew he wasn't long for CBGBs. But I think everybody came from other cities thinking, CBGBs, wow. Did, did you ever get exposed to any of the New York hardcore stuff that was kind of kicking off around that time too? 
No, I'm no. afraid not. Sorry. No, no, don't worry. Do not yeah. worry. I'm sure you would get no. exposed to it when you came back and got the BFGs. So. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. No, I didn't. And would that have been? Were those were those real fertile times for hardcore? It's kind of started eighty one to eighty four. Yeah, that's like where. But it's once again, it's after the gold rush, and it's like the next wave of kids. Yeah. And it was like their scene, and so that's where. Well, you where get, are they playing? Like where are the where are the club? A uh, seven. Uh, okay. And, really? Was that a punk bar? Yeah. Yeah, the A7 After Hours Club was like the... Fucking, that was still eight, you know, I was, that's the one on Avenue A between, yeah, yeah. between 4th and 5th, right? Yeah. And that was that was still fucking No Man's Land down there. Mm-hmm. That's what definitely you hear, like, there was that thing like, at, at Avenue A, you're all right. Avenue sort B, of. you better be careful. Yeah. Avenue C, you're crazy. Oh, no, no, Avenue, Avenue B, or, no, but, but in 81, <laughs> Avenue B, some bad's going to happen. Yeah, and then Avenue, Avenue C, you're, you're absolutely going to happen. And then Avenue, Avenue D, because that bad. was where the Cowboy Junkies moved when they were, I guess they were a hunger project then. And they got, wow. they were on Avenue B, and they got broken into two right away. Yeah. Right. It's like. <laughs> and even the guy putting the locks on said, you know this is not going to make any difference. <laughs> yeah. So, and you know that their, their rehearsal space was trap door down a ladder in the basement. Wow. Yeah. Like the real, the like real, real lower, lower east side. Yes, a real, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of exciting, but but it was definitely, it's definitely dangerous down in Alphabet Town in those days. Yeah, no, definitely. And like that's that scene is where, you know, you'd have the bands that would go on to become the Cro-Mags, you know, like the Beastie Boys would be going to their first shows towards the end of yeah. that time period too. And like, yeah. it's really, uh, it was a fertile time for music. Like, I guess that's the thing about post-punk new wave kind of period it's just like everyone was just kind of like okay let's build our own scenes because like yeah. you guys ultimately wind up putting out your own seven inch for blue rodeo right That's but it had all happened sort of like right at the same time you know we we by the time we came back from new york you know we were so it? so tired of the of the idea of chasing a record contract mm-hmm. we just thought we had been through every uh false hope that you can be through you know giving your tapes to people who know somebody who knows somebody and then talking to them weeks later and say, oh yeah, right, I had your tape and that kind of stuff. And we also had, we had this great thing with Steve Roboski. Steve Roboski was the famous A&R guy from, from CBS. And we'd always send stuff to Steve Roboski. And he was always nice about it, but never, you know. And then when we were leaving New York, we did this tape with the Drongos and we sent it out. And it had like rose-colored glasses, uh, um, might have dry eyes. Anyway, had, had all those songs. songs so early too. It's yeah. crazy. That had uh, those songs on it, and and we came back to Trump, and then put our band together. Rubusky phones us and says, "This is great. When are you playing?" He said, "Fuck, <laughs> we just lived in New York for three years." He said, "Do one more gig for me. Just do one more gig." I'm like, so of course you know, Charlie, kick the football. I promise I won't take it away. Yeah. So we say, okay, we'll do it. So we go down. So that was when we did a gig with we did a gig with Handsome Ned on like Valentine's Day, and then we went drove down to New York and did it on the fifteenth, something like that. CBGBs, go in. You know, we've driven all the way down, set up our stuff. Four bands a night. We look at the guest list. Every single band has Steve Roboski on the de- <laughs> guest list, right? Yeah. Well, Steve Roboski's coming to see us tonight. Yeah. Okay. So of course he doesn't show, and we go back to Toronto and and we think, great, that is over. And he calls us and I'm so sorry, I got caught uptown, and could you please do one more? And we're like, we're just not interested. We really just don't give a fuck. <laughs> so no, so no. And you know, that was, and that, was, that was one of the reasons that the Queen Street scene, other than Tansom Nitt, who thought he was gonna be a huge star mm-hmm. from the very beginning, was that there was 
it was almost as if record company people were not invited. You know, I was just like, don't fucking talk to us about this stuff. It's not going to happen. We're not interested. And we got a great music scene going on here. And, and although, you know, although Red, Ned really believed he was going to get signed, he, he self-generated so much. Mm. He had events and parties and he put a whole thing on the island, you know, the, the Ryerson picnic. And it, he just did amazing things. And there was just no need for, for anything other than self-direction. And that's why we ended up, you know, we had that single ready to go. I think it was trying something live. Yeah. Something live from, from a horseshoe. Outskirts of life. Is it live? Yeah. It's live. Okay. No, no, outskirts is... Live. No, outskirts... No, Outskirts is, 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 is Try is live. Yeah, Try is live. And lot. Outskirts right. is not. But this is actually from, this is, this is from uh, the making of, of, of the first record. Oh, really? It's like Yeah, because Terry or? Brown's doing it with us. And good. so this one, and this, would, and this is from a, a night at the horseshoe. But that was just because, I guess that was just because, <clears throat> you know, uh, we were forging ahead and just going to do it on our own. But it ends up that it weirdly happens, they happen kind of coincidentally. That Warner does offer us a contract, mm-hmm. and yet we're we're ready to go with this, so we put it out. So at, when you put this out, was like because this record it doesn't exist. It's like one of these records that like when I found this years and years ago, I was just like, oh, that's crazy. I never even heard about this. Really? Yeah, and it's like, and I saw there's one of the horseshoe on the wall now. Yeah, which I think they found in the archives. Well, it, it, it it came out in, yeah, in no, some exactly. in some limited form. You know, those days, and I, I assume this was the same for for most punk bands. Sam's would take anything. Like, they were so supportive of, of local music. Mm-hmm. They had a whole rack of singles that were, that, were, that were all local, independent, you know, they were prominently featured. Was that the same for punk? No, definitely. De- well, it definitely was at one point because, like, when Sam's was closing down, I remember going through there and being like, oh, my gosh, how does Sam's oh. have copies of this? Oh, like, really? Like, all okay. this stuff. Uh, but I think... I don't know. I wasn't in a Actually, you know what? That's not true. I could remember as a kid going to Sam's and I would be able to find all my favorite band CDs. Yeah. Like, they definitely were taking small independent labels. They took everything. But there was, and there was that weird thing when they went bankrupt. I, I yeah, no, I know. Yeah. Then, then when, the, when, the, when the bankruptcy trouble happened, yeah, I'm sure they had some... to. And then they were, they were probably under different guidelines. But boy, in those days, in, in the 80s, it was... he was, uh, you just walked in, you talked to the manager, and there you were up on the wall. And then you kind of made it. Like, that's the biggest store, right? Yeah, like... and that's right. And people bought it. It was really good. It was really good. There was a lot of, uh, of support for, how, for what was going on. How did you meet Cleve? Because Cleve plays drums on this, right? Were you... Cleve we knew from the Battered Wives. Right? Okay. We knew of him. Yeah. We knew them, and we, we, uh, we knew who they were, and we met them. And they, they were a great example of a punk band because their stage persona was a lot different than who they were. <laughs> yeah, Uganda. Right? Also incredibly controversial, like Uganda Stomp, the name, like definitely. <laughs> I know, I know. And you thought when you, I remember seeing them open for, oh, somebody, uh, I can't remember who it was. I mean, I can't remember, but I just can't remember the name. And uh, they were so fucking aggressive. And they just were, they were just, they were, they were just, a, and then, you know, you go see Cleve, of course, is such a sweet guy. Yeah. Toby's this nice guy. You know, and they're they're just not the the same people at all, and uh, but anyway, we met Cleve when when we got back to Toronto. <clears throat> you know, in those days, there was only a couple of places where people hung out, and so I think we went to the Fiesta or the Metropolitan Restaurant, and Cleve was there celebrating the birth of his son, Cleve, 
Uh, yeah. And so uh, we told him that we were, he'd come back and we were going to get a band. And we knew he wasn't playing in a band right then, although Battered Wives had some gigs coming up. And would he be interested? He said he was, and through him we kind of got Basil in. You know uh, Battered Wives also, that's uh, Pat Smear from the Foo Fighters' father-in-law is the lead singer. What? Yeah. His daughter, I can't remember her name now, I wish I'm blanking on it, but married Pat Smear. Really? Yeah. Oh. They met in Toronto. She was like, she worked at AM640 or some radio right. station. Okay, that's they, funny. They met, but yeah, so there's the, there's that weird, once again, punk connection to everything. Yeah, yeah. And actually, his dad, her father was a painter and painted my, my parents' house as a kid. So when my parents got divorced, I was going through my dad's record collection and found the Batter Wives LP release version when they yeah. had an L, LP release at the Elma Combo. Yeah, yeah. And stuff, so. Yeah, that was kind of their place, right? The Elma was the Elma, their spot. The Elma was their spot, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Were you a fan of the Wayouts at all? Like, did the High Fives and the Wayouts I liked play it, at all? yeah. No, we never played together, but I, I certainly liked them. Because it seems like you guys them. would also, like, obviously they're doing something much more bubblegum than you guys were doing. Yeah, but I liked them. But, and like I said, it was just, there just wasn't a lot of fraternity among bands. Mm -hmm. They just, we didn't, we didn't, you know, even like the band, like if, for the little while that we were going to be on Ready Records, we never really met Colin Linden. <laughs> I didn't really make Gord <laughs> from the Spoons. You know, they just, we just kind of existed in our own world. Yeah. And uh, that's why it was such a relief to come back to the, the scene that Handsome Ned had started because it was so fraternal. Everybody hung out together. It really seems like, and maybe this is just the rose-colored glasses that we kind of view the past with, but like, it seems like with the crash and burn, there was that kind of fraternity. Like all those bands did know each other. They like, did, and what? they were friendly and not not. Well, no, I don't think they were friendly necessarily, but yeah. They did but I mean, that's. Other. I mean, I, I recognize it, but there was there was, you know, I, it's almost as if the punk ethos did not allow that to happen. Yeah. You know, because you had to shit on everybody else. That's kind of a Toronto thing, though. It was a Toronto thing for sure. It was. Yeah. And, and again, I think part of it was just competition for so few spots. Yeah. Because, you know, when, when, you're, when you were fighting for slots at the edge, you, you had to suck up to the Garys. Yeah. And they were, you know, they could be a bit much. Well, I think, and that's also like, the stakes are a lot higher in Toronto than they would be if you were in Regina, where like, you know, because we have a music industry here, so like there's, there's real prospects for this becoming your career. I guess, but, and yet there wasn't. Yeah, there really wasn't, true. and I think that that was that was that was why there was zero competition when we came back because nobody was like honeymoon suite got signed. What did that have to do with <laughs> anything that was coming down? You know, there was no there was this sense of uh, isolation, which was extremely good for the scene. Mm -hmm. You know, that people came back for the love of music, not for not for the big career. When you guys were touring. What was the circuit like? Because, like, was there much of a touring circuit? Because I, I would, you know, across Canada. At, well, at that, the, the, that cross Canada didn't happen until we actually had a, till we actually had a record. And by the time we had a record, then yes, there's 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 stuff across the country. Because <clears throat> for us, we were very lucky in that we weren't, you know, we were known enough to play Halifax, to play Hamilton, to maybe play Vancouver. But it wasn't until Try, and then Try becomes a hit mm -hmm. and a video hit. And then all of a sudden there's, everything is, is opened up. So maybe like we go to Winnipeg and we play the Marlboro Hotel, but that doesn't really, that doesn't usually do gigs, but because there's a band that has a, a video, then there'll be, a, there'll be some action. So th there was a lot of makeshift stuff happened in those days, but there was, there was you know, there was a scene. I, I guess by saying this, I'm saying that in, in some cities, we bypassed 
the local club. Yeah. We didn't we were we didn't play a Regina club. We had to find something bigger. But we played every club. There are certain places we played every club. We played everything in Calgary. We played everything in Edmonton. You know, that was and happy to do it. And what kind of bands were you playing with on those that first tour? Like, was it like, because like, I think so much of Canadian independent music identity is informed by you guys, you know? So I'm just wondering, like, what, what yeah, song was sticking you the guys early, in? In the early days of touring, I don't, I don't remember who we played with. I don't, I don't remember there being, there, there might have been local bands, and there, but I don't, I don't remember meeting. I mean, I remember, yeah, I don't remember meeting people. See, now we go back to 70. I remember meeting the Pointed Sticks. They were a big deal. Yeah. They were a big deal. There was a lot of stuff happening in Vancouver that we actually got to know. There seemed to be a bit more of a Art Bergman, Pointed Sticks, DOA. There was a lot more uh, camaraderie in Vancouver. I guess because it's smaller. But you're right. Like, it definitely, you know. Yeah. Like... I don't know. Whatever was the characteristic, they they all knew each other and, and, uh, and played with each other and put these big things on it. Were you hearing those records over here? Like, were you oh, hearing yeah. the K-Tells and all that kind of stuff? Um, not or like, uh, young, young Canadians. Yeah, like young that. Canadians, yeah. Pointed Sticks, yeah, we thought they were great. Yeah. I think we played with... I think there might be a... They, they lasted into the 80s. So there might have been a Blue Rodeo uh, play with uh, with the Pointed Sticks. Oh, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I think they did a single on Stiff. Like, I think it was a disaster and never really yeah. got released properly. I think... For some reason, I think we played like a convention center gig with them in Edmonton. Whoa, that would've been awesome! And then we saw that we saw bits and pieces of them play at the Railway Club. And you ever play the Railway Club in Vancouver? No. Still going? As far as I know, yeah. Oh wow! Okay. Played bits and pieces of their band there, and uh, <clears throat> and I guess also Chris Houston's a bit of a a, a weave through all this, right? Yeah. Because <clears throat> he knew all the Hamilton people, then he moved to Vancouver, and then he knew all those people. And, so, now that I'm thinking about it, it's probably the way we met a lot of these people. Oh, really? So, but didn't but didn't meet Toronto people, you know? Just never did. Well, because I guess, well, like, you know, it feels so much more spread out. You know, like you are saying, like, you know, the Cabana Club feels like it's miles and miles away from, you know, Larry's Hideaway. Even I though. guess, but, you know, you think if you played Larry's, if you played the Cabana, you'd think that you'd meet maybe the bands yeah. that played there. You know, nowadays, <laughs> people come down and... And see each other like you, you were never going to play the horseshoe from '85 on, where somebody in the audience is not going to be a musician. Yeah. So, <clears throat> but I don't know that just it was very separate then. It was very separate, and also people didn't play regularly. They played like it was a big deal, you know, because they were putting out a, a single or because they were had some party going on. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What about Teenage Head? Like that's the one band that hasn't come up yet. Were you? Oh yeah, yeah. We we were well acquainted and 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 uh, <clears throat> and really liked those guys. Mm-hmm. And they were very authentic. Mm-hmm. They were very much what they were on yeah. stage. That's who they were. <laughs> and they were great. And they also really figured big into the early days of Blue Rodeo because they created the mayhem at Ontario Place. Yeah. Of people, <laughs> you know. Going in the water and everything. Like you that. guys played that, and those were the early days of us playing Ontario Place. You guys played on. Did you play that Teenage Head show? That no, no, no. Oh, okay, no, no, I was gonna be like no. that would have been. No, 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 no. We that was. I mean, I know it was right around one of our shows because uh, yeah, because they was they were threatening to shut it down or something. Like <laughs> but uh, we always heard about them and met them because I guess I guess because we knew Hamilton people, right? Maybe through Chris again, mm-hmm. but met all the guys and they were they're they're 
they're good guys. Would you gig Hamilton? Like, was that like somewhere you guys? We gigged uh, Hamilton at. I think we did one or two as a high fives, but certainly as Blue Rodeo in the yeah. early days. They would. Hamilton was one of those places that they'd have a new club for like six months, right? <laughs> so they. So we played this place called Dallas. That was a big fucking horror show, and uh, there'd be. Get all these, these, these. There was, was there banisters down there, or was that in Cambridge? That was, I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, there was always there was always new, old raggedy <laughs> bars coming up. You know, somebody would take it over and put a music program in there, and it would last for six months. And we we play those kind of places. What about uh, Shadowy Men? On Shadowy, Shadowy Men definitely were were big, big, uh, uh, big on the scene, and mm-hmm. but they're quite. They're, they're at least ten years younger than we are, yeah. and so they were—they uh, were such young guys. But they were—they were big, big time in the scene. They were—they were. They were uh, well, and Don had been around, right? Like Don, mm-hmm. Crash Kills Five, I guess. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, Crash Kills Five was around when we were. Yeah. Would you guys did the high fives in Crash Kills Five? It might might have been, yeah, oh, absolutely. They're, but they're definitely they're definitely around when we're around. Well, Jim, I could talk to you all day. This has been amazing. <laughs> you, you've helped me get my memory back. Well, that's what everyone says. When they do this podcast, it's like a, a laxative of the brain of it's some sort. Great, it's great. <laughs> I haven't thought about those days for a long time. Well, I'm very happy to hear you talk about them because I said, I remember meeting you, God, it must have been like almost 10 years ago now, on the red carpet of the Junos. And the first thing I said to you and Greg was, I love the high fives. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I'm glad I finally got well, to do Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you have both these singles. Well, I tell I'm gonna you. I'm going to have to search through my, I've got to make sure. I mean, I know that, you see, Dave Booth had a bunch of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder if he still does. I think, seems to me we got them back. This, this is, uh, it's funny too, because, you know, obviously vile tones have gone on to become sort of legendary and things like that. But I think Canadian music, it's, there's just so much stuff that just hasn't been rediscovered properly. Mm. And even stuff that has connections to stuff that got huge, like you, you know, like still hasn't been rediscovered till recent years and stuff like the lawn has yet to be rediscovered. Really? Yeah. yeah, I feel feel like that. I feel like there's a a void in Canada for like a really good reissue label that goes back and kind of, that's right. That's, that would be a great idea. You know, especially with the predominance of, of record stores. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, there's more places for people to find out about this stuff. And now we also like, we live in a time where, People that care about this stuff want to get something with nice packaging, nice liner notes, and things like that. And so, maybe this is our business opportunity. So, what is your what's your collection like? How how much how many records do you have? Uh, LPs, it's around three thousand. Seven inches, around eight thousand. Jesus! And where do you keep it all? In I have a room in my house that's like the room that the kids do not go, and it's like. Uh, also, recently, I acquired a barbed wire wrapped baseball bat that's hanging, <laughs> death matches, that's hanging in there too. That's a good memory for those kids. I've had to lock up that thing, uh, wow. and but I have like a bunch of forty fives in, in boxes, so I can kind of flip through them. And then my LPs are in the industry standard IKEA Expedite. I think they've renamed it. But yeah, it's but the, they're 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 all uh, organized by uh, country. By country, okay. By country, because I love to know, and and by city too. Like I have. Certain cities like Toronto, or cities that I'm kind of like Cleveland, uh, fascinated by sort of the way music progressed there. I kind of keep yeah. them separate so I can just go, oh yeah, like that. So it's a disease. It's a horrible, horrible disease. It's a good disease. It's great. It's I'm the cops disease. I know, it's, it's just having it. That yeah. was a good. I remember Cleveland was a good place. The high fives, not you know, it wasn't. We're not going to get super popular, but we did a kind of a lake. Like Erie tour, you know. We guys went south of the border. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. With the high fives, that's. Oh. I'm, I'm sure that that's where Joey Shithead. We met Joey Shithead. I'm pretty sure it was in Cleveland. 
You guys played with Dio or just met him at the... No, I think that they were playing... There was like a little bit of a festival-y thing, but it was just in a bar. We played one night. DOA was playing the next night, something like that. Where else did you go in that U.S. little... Like Buffalo? Oh, well, we went... Well, sure, we went to Buffalo. I think we went to... Uh, uh, we might have gone as far as Cincinnati. Uh, Detroit. Detroit, wow. we played Bookies. Wow. Bookies? Yeah, <laughs> that's a legendary club. Yeah, I know. Bookies, like, when we got there, these guys said, you know, somebody shot dead just over there last week. <laughs> okay. That kind of shit never freaked you out. But then you think about it later, then, fuck. Yeah, as an adult, it's like, yeah. oh, it's amazing the things yeah. that I don't worry about as a younger person. Yeah, but, but we just had a, we had a little station wagon, and we, we just drove around and did that Lake Erie tour. Was there any connection between Buffalo's scene? Because the jumpers, Buffalo had some sort of power pop kind of scene going on, too. Not, uh... There was certainly with the early Blue Rodeo, but not not that we knew in okay. that, not not uh, not with those days. I mean, Buffalo's always been a fantastic place. I, yeah, I, I, whatever I've found out about Buffalo, I've always been really interested. Yeah. So I really liked playing there. We used to play a place called Nietzsche's. Okay. Nietzsche's was a tiny little bar in in Buffalo. Those were early days of Blue Rodeo before we had a record. Who were who were the bands that you were playing with then? Was it like. Were Goo Goo Dolls there or no? Or mm. not? They were probably still a hardcore band at that point. No, right? I don't know. You, you, I, it's funny that, you, you know, I hadn't really thought about this, but when you're, when you're new and you're going to Nietzsche's, let's say, I don't remember, like, I don't even remember getting there in time to see <laughs> them, anyone else. You yeah. know, yeah. yeah. I, I just remember coming, setting up, and playing. That's still the way it is with bands. <laughs> like, yeah. I still have... We toured one time with the Arcade Fire, and we had to load onto the stage at stadiums every day because we were so late getting to the shows. Because you, because of the distance. Because of the distance, yeah. he was running for a bus, and we I were in know. a van. I know, I know, I know. That we did a... that to my son. They <laughs> 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 don't. get there at six o'clock. You miss fucking Sanjay. We had to drive five hundred miles. Well, you know what? He had to get into Quest by lottery, and by God, he has to earn his keep as a musician. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, Jim, thank you so much once again. This has been awesome. Pleasure. Really nice talking to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jim, for coming on the show. And hopefully one day I'll have another chance to sit down with Jim and we'll be able to kind of go into into other topics because there's a lot more to find out about, you know, off air afterwards. Started talking about seeing, uh, you know, all, all sorts of cool stuff, you know, Glenn Bronca and stuff. So hopefully Jim will be back on the show. And once again, he has this brand new record, Constellation, available on Warner Music Canada. You can pick it up everywhere you pick up records. Everywhere. I'm sure it's going to be... Uh, you know, on vinyl as well. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, this is on vinyl. It's in source. So pick it up anywhere you can. Listen to it. Um, and yeah, thanks again to Jim. Also, thank you to Steve Waxman, uh, who set this all up for me from Warner. Steve is going to be a future guest on the show. He dropped some uh, some real amazing knowledge on me on uh, his musical past. And Jim was also shocked at his musical past. So that's going to be coming up in a future episode of Turn out a punk um i guess that's it for this week coming up next week on the show i i just haven't had a chance to stop and think what's going to be next week on the show i'm going to put it out on twitter and instagram hopefully later on this week and let everyone know uh and yeah once again i appreciate your patience and stuff during this and thank you and also thank you very much to to kim for jumping back into the seat driver's seat and helping trish and i get this thing up for you out there all right Love you guys. Please, please, everyone, go out there and hug your family, you know, and, uh, 
you know, not if your family did horrible things to you, but, but if there's minor things between you guys, just get over and hug your family. All right. Love you. See you next week. Anyone can do this.